Welcome to DeLorean Talk, episode number two. Joining me today is Barry Wills, a former DeLorean Motor Company Limited employee. In fact, the last employee of DeLorean Motor Company Limited. Uh, he is joining me from Coventry, England. Is that correct, Barry? Meriden, England. Meriden, England. Meriden, which is the center of England. <laughs> oh, got it. Near Coventry. Well, thanks so much for uh, being on DeLorean Talk. This is uh, should be exciting and, and interesting. I know that you recently went to Eurofest. I was not there, and there was a lot of people not there, but the pictures looked fantastic, and there was even a picture of you up there speaking. Have you been to other Eurofests in the past? No, it's the first uh, I've been invited to. Uh, I, I, I consider it, of course, to be very much a... Uh, an owner's uh, event rather than a former employee's event. So I wouldn't presume to just, just show up or even apply. I, I, uh, I felt very privileged and honored to be asked to attend uh, this, this year and uh, to be given the opportunity of speaking to the Assembled. They assembled 250 people, which was wow. very impressive. I, didn't, I did not realize there were that many people there. I, the pictures I saw... I think that said that there were 70 to 100 cars that showed up. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, I think there were just under 100 cars. And the other impressive thing was that the attendees came from uh, as many as, I think it was 18 countries. Wow. Well, I know there were several people that I know here in Southern California that went. Yes, I met one or two of them. Oh, awesome. Had I bought my car... A year ago, maybe I would have been there, but I'm a I'm a new owner myself. Only November of 2015, so still well, still learning. Welcome to the club. Thank you. Good. And in fact, that was that's one of my questions. Is uh, I I have well, let me go back a little bit. You just released a book, John Z, The DeLorean and Me: Tales from an Insider. It came out in October of 2015. I bought my copy from DeLorean Motor Company, Huntington Beach, or DMC, California. Uh, and I know it's on Amazon as mm -hmm. well. I started reading it, but yep. that is a – there's so much information in that book. That is not a, uh, a coffee table book. Uh, no, it wasn't intended as a coffee table book. <laughs> it was meant to be um, – it was meant to be uh, an account that supplemented uh, Nick Sutton's wonderful history of the DeLorean project, um, the DeLorean story, which was published uh, – I think in 2013. Um, having read that, I, I thought it was a, a very superb outline history of the uh, company, particularly the company in Northern Ireland. Uh, and uh, I'd had on my mind for many, many years the the thought of um, putting uh, my memoirs, if you like, uh, into print, and uh, it was Nick's book that triggered that. Good. Well, good for all of us because just from what I've read so far, so much fantastic detail, and I'm excited to dig into it more, and I'm sure plenty of other people are. What I have not gotten to, and I don't know that it's in your book, and hopefully all of these questions aren't already covered, but uh, not everyone will read the book. Do you own a DeLorean, or have you ever owned a DeLorean? Uh, I do not own a DeLorean. I have never owned a DeLorean. <laughs> I had a DeLorean as a company car in Northern Ireland. In fact, I had one of only 12 right-hand drive conversions of the car. Wow. Um, I was, uh, we haven't covered this point yet, but uh, when the company got into financial difficulties and went into the, the British equivalent of Chapter 11, which was called receivership, uh, halfway through the receivership, uh, I was appointed chief executive of what was left of the company to hold it together. Uh, when uh, the unfortunate state of liquidation occurred, I was offered the opportunity to buy my company car for the princely sum of £5,000, which then would have been about, I guess, 8000 US dollars. Um, wow. I, for lots of reasons, uh, I said no. Uh, that is a, a not my best ever business decision, and I regret it immensely. <laughs> I bet. Uh, we've all done that, seen those great deals and passed them up. Uh, fantastic, though. So there, as far as you know, there, there were only 12 
Has anyone else done right-hand conversions since then? Yes, I believe they have. I think particularly in Australia, uh, the Australian government have a, a strange law that says that uh, if you if you import uh, a car into the country, even if it's a, a classic, um, because like we we Brits, Australia having been part of our original empire, they drive on what you would regard as the wrong side of the road. <laughs> uh, and so they insist that all cars are converted to right-hand drive. Huh. So, as I understand it, there are several uh, subsequent conversions over and above the uh, the original 12 that were uh, contracted by the company, by DeLorean Motorcars Limited in Belfast, uh, to be converted to right-hand drive, purely, for, originally, purely for the use of uh, directors at Dunmurray and senior management in Dunmurray. Nice. And you were one of those. In fact, you were the the last employee, right? Uh, I was almost the first. Yeah. And very nearly the last. Uh, I was the, certainly the longest serving. I started in October of uh, 1978 uh, within two weeks of the groundbreaking um, uh, at Dunmurray. Uh, and I left in February 1983 when I literally handed over the keys of the plants to the auctioneers, but left behind two trusted employees, Dick Mulholland and Paul Murray, to work closely with the uh, with the auctioneers, which they did for uh, a matter of several months. That was one of my other questions, was were you involved in the final auctions? And it sounds like uh, you, had, you had finished your tenure at that point and handed off the keys. Yes, my responsibilities really ended once the the plant and equipment left in the uh, in the Dunmurray factory uh, had been uh, organised into groups of similar equipment, fully labelled up with um, uh, a lot number and all the other things that have to occur at an auction. Uh, once that was done, uh, the site was clear. The all the employees had left apart from two, which I left behind, and were, in fact, um, employed by the auctioneers for a short period of time. Oh, got it. So you could argue that I was the last man out. <laughs> right. So to go backwards through my questions, you're, I, I have read your account of your interview uh, with John DeLorean and getting the job, turning down the job a few times. Very interesting. That's That'll be a great thing for people to read in the book. But I'm wondering about your relationship with John DeLorean. Were you friends uh, after he hired you? Obviously, it's a job. But at some point, did you become friends? Did you spend any time together? Did you come over to the U.S. to see him before, during, or after the the court case? Well, there are a few questions there. Let's take them (laughs) one by one. Firstly, I didn't know John before I got a phone call. Uh, that asked me if I would like to meet him. Um, having accepted the job, uh, by that time he was somebody that I had grown to like immensely through the three uh, meetings I had with him. Uh, the third one, of course, you've missed out the point that his wife Christina was there. It was a strange meeting over lunch with three of us. Um, and that, which I'm sure John contrived. Anyway, anyway I think uh, more than anything, it was Christina's charm that um, encouraged me to join the company. Um, once I was in place, yes, I. Uh, you've got to remember that I didn't work directly for John. I worked for a managing director, Charles Bennington, and later, once we were heading toward production, the second managing director, Donald Lander. Um, so my direct association with John was fairly limited. Uh, I did visit him two or three times in New York, always at the request of my managing directors, never, um, you know, never in in any way going behind their back. Um, I was very fortunate uh, that to be asked to attend the the testing of the twin turbocharged cars that Legend Industries uh, designed, developed, and constructed uh, on Long Island in November of 1981, when I spent quite a bit of time with John. Um, and 
Um, I got to know the guy fairly well, but I would not claim to be a close friend. The last time I saw John, I'm pretty sure, was at the Christmas party that we held in Dunmurray at the Conway Hotel, um, probably around about the 20th, 23rd of December, 1981. Uh, that was the last time I saw him. That, I think, was the last time I spoke to him. Oh, wow. So uh, when all of the trouble started, you were reading it in the papers like everyone else and talking to your close friends who knew him as well. Yeah. Uh, we were <laughs> We were also, during the receivership, we were communicating directly or indirectly through jo- uh, to John through uh, the receivers, Sir Kenneth Cork and Paul Shaw. Hmm. Um, but particularly when Charles Bennington uh, and I uh, linked with a third man by the name of Bill Bellamy, who was the chairman of a joint venture trim company that DeLorean was part of, um, made an attempt to uh, save the company in the middle of 1981 when we were, in fact, anonymous. Uh, we, we were known as the UK Consortium, um, which was a name that Sir Kenneth Cork effectively dreamt up. Uh, John was not aware of the membership of the UK Consortium, hmm. but was effectively talking to us through, through Sir Kenneth Cork. It was a very strange uh, relationship, to say the least. Yeah. So, during the receivership, time what how did the media treat you during uh, during that time were you were you the the bad guy face of the company i mean i like many delorean fans over the years i've read about you know the employees striking and and how upset people were obviously people were in need of jobs things weren't great but did you become the bad guy because you were the one in charge no i don't i did uh, I, i'm i'm not the person to judge in a way but no i never felt the bad guy uh, in fact, you know, once the company was in its financial difficulties, we worked very, very closely with the uh, shop floor representatives, the, the trade unions that were represented in the plant. And that was relatively easy because effectively, unlike the rest of the British motor industry that had anything up to 20 trade unions represented within their plants, we had two. Wow. You know, we were, we were a breakthrough in, in industrial relations, and we had two. So it was relatively easy to communicate with the representatives of the shop floor. Um, and um, I certainly felt, and having met with at least one of the senior uh, trade union officials within the company over the last five years, uh, he felt the same, that we were all working towards the same result, which was the attempt to make sure that employment continued at Dunmurray and that some form of company came out of the receivership. And that did not happen. Uh, once everything was auctioned off. Unfortunately, no. I mean, we came very, very close. Um, the, 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 the reason that our uh, business plan to save the company, was so highly regarded by Sir Kenneth Cork and why it got his support and the support also of the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, James Pryor, who was effectively running Northern Ireland uh, for Margaret Thatcher, the then Prime Minister, was that we had done a deal with British Leyland to take over manufacture of the uh, recently cancelled Triumph TR8, <laughs> uh, a two-seater soft-top sports car with uh, a, 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 the Rover V8 three-and-a-half-litre engine, formerly a Buick engine, of course, within General Motors that Rover had purchased from, from GM, um, and build that in Dunmurray alongside the DeLorean. Um, 
the deal with British Leyland uh, did not allow us to use either the Triumph brand name or the TR8 model name, uh -huh. but we overcame that by doing a deal with Donald Healy and his son Jeffrey Healy of the famous Austin Healy sports car right. brand, uh, through which we could rename the Triumph TR8 the Healy 3500, you know, shades of the Healy 3000, <laughs> of course. Right. And unfortunately, from John's point of view, because John's name by the middle of 1981 had become, frankly, toxic in Britain. Sure. Uh, particularly in the city of London, particularly amongst the financiers. So... The, had we succeeded, the DeLorean DMC-12, to use its code name, would have become the Healy Gullwing. So there would have been two cars produced at Dunmurray, the Healy 3,500, the Healy Gullwing, built within a company called Dunmurray Motor Company, huh. DMC. Wow. We wanted to retain, we wanted to retain the DMC logo which had become so famous by then, of course. And sure. that is something that John agreed to, along with another 19 questions that Sir Kenneth Cork took to John DeLorean in New York uh, at the beginning of August of 1981. Wow. Unfortunately, although we had pretty well organize the means through which the finance that we needed, which was about twenty million pounds or should we say thirty two or three million dollars um, through the the city of London, uh, there was a minor detail that needed to be addressed by uh, the British government or the Northern Ireland branch of the British government. The Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, James Pryor, took that point to the Prime Minister on a one-to-one -one basis, to Margaret Thatcher. Unfortunately, there was a miscommunication. Mrs. Thatcher misheard or didn't, didn't listen closely enough to what Mr. Pryor was saying to her. Uh, she thought that the UK consortium was asking for more money from the British government, which it wasn't. <laughs> right. A response was quite simple in terms of what was reported back to us. I can't do an impression of the lady, but I'm sure you can get the gist of it. There will be no more money. Yeah. Tell the receivers to do their job. The latter meaning, of course, get rid of it. Yeah. I've had enough of this. Yeah. Wow. I have, I've been following the car for 25 plus years. I've never heard about the, uh, the new DMC, Dunmurray Motor Company. Very interesting. That's because I hadn't written my book. <laughs> I kept that very much to myself over 35 years. It's never been, it's never been disclosed. It was referred to, uh, in general terms in Nick Sutton's book, The DeLorean Story, for the first time, because Nick was part of the, select group of DeLorean employees that we um, we took into our confidence. There was only about half a dozen employees that were told what was going on. The reason for the uh, confidential nature was that our deal with British Leyland said that if the deal that we'd struck with them became public, then it was off. Um. They were very concerned about the prospects of their workers in uh, the UK, many of whom had been made redundant with the uh, stoppage of production of the TR8 and its sister car, the TR7, the one with the two-litre engine, mm -hmm. uh, that that would result in a lot of protest. And protest was something they didn't need. So sure. we had to be very, very careful in terms of maintaining that confidence right the way through the... Well, the very short period of, I don't know, 12 weeks or so that we had got that deal in place before it was scuppered by Mrs. Thatcher's um, impatience, shall we say. <laughs> and it was that, of course, that allowed John back in. Uh, the, the receivers had struck a deal with John that 
if and when the so-called UK consortium deal failed, then John could come in with one more attempt. Right. And it was that one more attempt that led to his entrapment by the FBI in the infamous um, cocaine sting. Right. So, uh, first, fascinating. I, I'm like I said, I have started the book, but uh, uh, I'm excited to get to that part, uh, D, the new DMC. Talking about the cocaine, I being a new owner, which is very different than just being a fan, because I've I've gotten to know other owners uh, better now. Several of them tend to get kind of impatient and don't like the jokes and the, you know that that's the only thing people remember about the car and about John DeLorean. Only recently uh, I ran across the that letter that is has been published in one of the books that I think that I saw you online had said that looks like John's signature and handwriting. It is a letter where John has written a, a letter to someone named Tom saying he is going to go meet with some drug dealers and basically try to take advantage of them by selling them stock in a company that doesn't exist or that won't exist. Do, are you familiar with that letter? Uh, yes, I've, I've read the letter. I think it's in John's um, autobiography. Um, uh, it's something that I'd forgotten about, uh, largely because John's biography annoyed me um, it seemed to be it seemed to be more about um, him clearing his conscience than anything else and sure. Dun Murray hardly gets a mention ah. it, it, it really saddened me because um, there was so little uh, he contributed so little to telling people the incredible job that was performed in in the UK uh, between Lotus who engineered the car and uh, the team in Dunmurray to get the vehicle into production and market within 28 months. Um, Tom was Tom Kimmerley. Tom Kimmerley was John's lawyer. He was on the board of DeLorean Motor Company, the, the, the parent of the DeLorean Motor Cars Limited. Tom was a bit of a mysterious figure. I don't think I ever remember him being in Dunmurray. Hmm. Um, I met him once in um, in New York uh, when I was asked by John to sit in a, a, a board meeting. The reason for me sitting in, I was completely bewildered by because I wasn't expected to make a contribution. I wasn't asked to make a contribution, and I didn't make a comp contribution. <laughs> it enabled me to say I attended a board meeting. That's about all. Um, but uh, the... I'm very, very um, I'm very, very suspicious about the letter. I'm not entirely convinced that that was written before John's arrest. Oh. It's, I'm, I'm saddened to say it, but I think there is a very high prospect that that was written after the event. Got um, it. That, that might make some sense. Yeah, it does, and it is so. It, it is so comprehensive. It's written so neatly uh, in, in John's style. I mean, John did tend to use capital letters rather than than, than you know writing continuous uh, flow mm -hmm. uh, as most people do. Mainly because I think his hand handwriting in that form was almost illegible. <laughs> but. Um, no, I, I'm a little, um, I'm a little uh, suspicious, to say All the right. least, of that of that letter. That's fair. I, one of the things I've held to for a long time, uh, just as a fan, was I, I kind of thought it was strange that somebody at his level, with his experience in the industry, would uh, would go after really a small amount of money. Um, you know, how much could you possibly, how much cocaine could you possibly import? in these cars uh, in the first place. And I just personally never believe that he would be that dumb to say, yeah, let's, you know, let's get in bed with these bad guys, make, you know, a couple million dollars when there's tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in the real business world. Oh, I think there's a lot more than $2 million involved. Have you read a book called the DeLorean tapes? No. Well, you ought to get hold of that. That's fascinating because the DeLorean tapes which was published by the Sunday Times newspaper in 
in the UK uh, shortly after uh, the company uh, was liquidated uh, includes the transcripts of all the FBI um, uh, phone taps. Wow. Uh, every conversation is in there. So uh, I found that very useful because when I was writing my book, I got three things to refer to. I got my, I kept my uh, appointment diaries. I didn't keep, you know, written diaries of what I'd done every day. It wasn't mm-hmm. time enough to do that. Life was too short. <laughs> uh, but I did keep the, uh, the, the, the appointment diaries that told me what I was doing on most days. I also found uh, in the last few days of my employment working for the receivers, the entire collection of company press cuttings that had been accumulated from the groundbreaking uh, at the time that the the, the funding was uh, awarded by the British government, right up to the point where I'd left and beyond, because um, I collected a few post uh, liquidation press cuttings. So I got those to refer to, and I then got the the chronological order of the FBI tapes, and it makes very very interesting cross comparisons. Yeah, particularly in terms of what was going on in my life uh, compared to what was going on in John's life in New York at the time that I was being asked by the receivers to hold things together whilst John raised the money. Right. Uh, My diaries show a whole series of what I termed JZD's last option. (laughs) These were dates that the receivers were giving as deadlines for John to come up with the money, the $20 million that he considered he needed to get the company back into production. Wow. Those, date, those dates move forward from around September the 1st, firstly at sort of fortnightly intervals, and then towards October the 19th at daily intervals. And when I compare those deadlines to what was going on in the conversations with the drug dealer Hoffman and the FBI agent Benedict, whatever his name was, you can see how I can construe communications going from the FBI to MI6, from MI6 to government, to government, from government to Mrs. Thatcher, from Mrs. Thatcher to James Pryor, from James Pryor progressively to the receivers. To the point where, on the evening of October the 19th in the UK, bearing in mind the time difference of um, Mm -hmm. seven hours, is it, to the west coast of America, on the day during which we had been in Dunmurray planning the last details of rehiring people, getting the suppliers switched on again, getting everything ready in the plant for the recommencement of production, I get a phone call My in my apartment uh, within what was known as the Warren House, which was actually on the site in Dunmurray. It was going to be a company guest house, but it never got that far. Right. Uh, I was living in the small apartment there. I get a phone call from the receivers saying, Barry, 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, Call the representatives of the workforce together. Unfortunately, you have to tell them it's all over. It's liquidation. The company is closing. My reaction, of course, was what on earth is going on? Yeah. Uh, you, you know, all day we've been clo- we've been getting the plant ready for reopening, and now right. you're telling me we're closing. Wow. You've got to tell me more. <laughs> I'm sorry, Barry. I can't tell you any more. So I settled down. Uh, to my, I think I've got a Kentucky Fried Chicken finger licking good meal from the local takeaway that evening. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I got rid of that and I had an early night. I went to I went to bed, went to sleep. Uh, I've a habit and had a habit then of have, using a radio alarm to wake me up. Uh, that was time for six thirty, uh, and it was time for the regular morning 
BBC news broadcast, the first really of the day. My radio alarm goes off. I hear the I hear the announcement. This is the Today program, as it was called. It's 6.30. The headlines. The car magnate, John DeLorean, has been arrested in a hotel room in Los Angeles, charged with cocaine smuggling. Well, uh, you can imagine, I woke up pretty quickly. Yeah. I couldn't believe what I was hearing, but that was it. And that was the reason why I had the phone call the evening before, uh, which to me made it quite clear that by that time the government of the UK knew exactly what was going on, they knew the arrest was going to be made, and therefore it was all over and liquidation was the only answer. Wow. Wow. You couldn't make it up, could you? You couldn't yeah. make it up. Well, it, it sounds like a good Hollywood movie if they, uh, you know, if they had written all that. Incredible. I think the problem with the DeLorean story is that there's too much for a Hollywood movie. You know, a Hollywood <laughs> movie lasts about one, one hour, 50 minutes. They're, I think that if anybody's ever going to turn this into uh, something that would be shown to the general public, it's got to be a mini TV miniseries. Right. Probably about 12 weeks. <laughs> 12 weeks of an hour. I know a few people have tried doing uh, some kind of a, a television show, movie, movie, or a series. Have you ever been approached to help with those? No. 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 Wow. Well, you got to remember, I'm 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 a non-entity, and until I wrote my book, nobody ever heard of me. Yeah. Well, and and I'd seen your name around on the boards, but you are such a fantastic resource. You know, going through the last few months of closing that plant, uh, four years after I'd moved onto a 72-acre bog. And with Charles Bennington and George Broomfield and the other key guys that got that plant up and running, um, by the time I handed the keys over to the auctioneer, frankly, I'd had enough. Yeah. Uh, it was a very, very emotional experience. And I basically just wanted to get on with my career, get on with other things. And um, I didn't really want to labor over what had happened or the history I just got on with the rest of my life, and I got on with the rest of my life for another, what was it, 30 years, 35 years. I, I retired in 2007, having spent 50 years in the auto industry. Yeah. DeLorean was just four and a half years of it. Right, right. So it's only been, it, as I say, it was, it was Nick Sutton's book. Uh, Nick, of course, worked for me as purchasing manager. It was Nick Sutton's book that triggered, triggered me to set about assisting him to do something that I know he set out to do, which was to set the record straight. Yeah. There'd been so much nonsense written about DeLorean over the years, particularly the car and the project. Forget about John. Yeah. You know, um, too much had been written about John, but that's not the important thing. There were two and a half thousand people, plus another 300 at Lotus, plus another... 20 or so at Ital Design in Turin who worked their socks off to bring into production a sports car, a unique sports car, stainless steel body, gullwing doors, rear engine, John's three features that had to be were sacrosanct, <laughs> uh, brought into production and sale in a record 28 months. Yeah. And that's one of the incredible things as a fan for a long time that I've always talked about mm. the car that, you know, normal giant car companies take years to develop and build cars and DeLorean somehow got it done in a crazy amount of time. And, and I'm not even in the industry and it, it seemed amazing that that could be done. But you were there. That is uh, just fantastic. Um, I imagine that uh, that book of the clippings is quite a treasure and uh, – uh, maybe one day you'll think about converting that to be a, a digital <laughs> hand, hand it off to someone. You've got to be joking. <laughs> you got to be joking. I have difficulty connecting on Skype. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, my plan is to, I, I'm going to give that to the DeLorean Museum in Houston, Texas. Great. I promised them once the book was finished, I'd, I'd get it to them. Oh, great. Along with uh, all my other stuff that I've accumulated. 
Oh, fantastic! Well, I hope it. I hope it's available to the public because that is great information. Well, that's their plan. I mean, they they don't keep anything secret. It's it's, a, it's available. They digitize, I think, almost everything, and I suspect awesome. they'll they'll do the job with with what I um what what I donate to them. At least I hope they will. Fantastic. So uh, to talk a little bit about more of the fun things when you work there, you you hired in as the director of purchasing yep. at DMCL. I imagine you were not actually doing a lot of the day-to-day hard work of, of ca- talking to vendors and trying to get things worked out, but does anything come to mind about what was the hardest part to source or find for the car, for the project? Well, correct your first assumption. I was involved personally. Oh. I mean, we... We, we, uh, I had a team of a very small team of purchasing agents. Um, in fact, I look back now and I, I compare it to the size of purchasing departments in organisations like Jaguar Land Rover that I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm not familiar with, but I'm aware of. And um, I had a team of, uh, I had a team of seven guys who, under me, bought. A, the entire contents of a motor car between them, yeah. negotiating every single component, sourcing it and negotiating. Uh, that you know, there are hundreds of people that do that now in a in a motor company the size of say Jaguar Land Rover. Sure. Uh, I had a team of oh another three or four uh, in Dunmurray. The, the, the production purchasing team was located in Coventry in England, but the uh, the, the team that bought the capital equipment was no more than a handful that reported to me in Dunmurray. And then I had another couple of three guys who, uh, whose responsibilities were to buy everything that was consumed within the plant from, you know, heating oil to mm. pens, pencils, toilet paper. Sure. Um, you name it. I mean, you know, it, it, the two and a half people, two and a half thousand people consume an awful lot of stuff yeah. and all that's got to be purchased but what we did was you divided it up uh, in terms of value the, the major components on the vehicle things like the uh, stainless steel the raw material from which came from British steel the stampings that turn the stainless steel into the body panels and the doors mm-hmm. the instrument cluster um, the uh, torsion, the famous torsion bar that <laughs> assisted the door opening, the major lamps, those were the sort of things that I personally would would source and negotiate. I was also party to the creation of the joint venture trim company that was established in in Belfast, uh, a joint venture between Gloria Motor Cars Limited the Northern Ireland Development Agency, and an English company called Chamberlain Phipps who provided the technology in trim. Uh, it was a, we called the company CP Trim. Uh, I was part of the creation of that. I became a non-executive director of that, as did Charles Bennington, the two of us representing DeLorean as shareholders, uh, and Bennington eventually was replaced by Don Lander on the board. So when it came to the Major items of capital equipment, the famous TELUS carriers, the uh, assembly lines themselves, the major resin injection equipment that, uh, from which the inner bodies were manufactured, the right. inner, you know, composite inner bodies were manufactured, mm-hmm. um, the compressors, things like that. I sourced those and I did the deals for those, wow. the negotiations. Um, I had to go to Detroit to meet the treasurer of General Motors to negotiate the payment terms on the various major components that were supplied by General Motors component manufacturing subsidiaries. Wow. Harrison Radiator that made the air conditioning, AC spark plug that made the instrument cluster, and so on. Um, The meeting uh, was GM then had an office on the top floor of one of the Twin Towers in, in, uh, I said Detroit, one of the Twin Towers in New York. I visited New York for that meeting, not not Detroit. 
Um, I have very, very, very clear memories of that meeting on the top floor. I can't remember which of the towers it was, but that's where GM's Treasury Department was located. Wow. So those are the sort of deals I did. And it went down the line. You know, the the next level of purchasing manager and chief buyer would handle the next most expensive componentry, the next most expensive systems. And then eventually you got down to the nuts, bolts and washers, you know, the thousands of nuts, bolts and washers that put the car together. Right. So that's how the job was done. And it was also done. The reason that we would, we, we were able to get the car into production so quickly is that we literally invented uh, what is now used throughout the auto industry, which is a system called simultaneous engineering. It's where the engineers <laughs> that are developing the car and the components within the car are working hand-to-hand with the buyers that are buying those parts so that you're bringing in the technology of the supplier companies early on in the development of the car so that it makes that much easier for the vehicle engineers to do their job. And you've got that phenomenal extra resource that the suppliers have that you can bring into the equation. Now, that is now the common process that every car manufacturer uses. They still don't do it in 28 months. Nobody is even (laughs) as crazy to try it. But yeah. we we invented it because it was the only way we could get the job done. Yeah. And it was that relationship between the Lotus engineers and the DeLorean buyers that was the uh, one of the most crucial parts. And, of course, the manufacturing engineers under George Broomfield were also working closely so that as the car was being engineered at Lotus, they were planning the plant. They were dev- deciding which plant and equipment was needed to install within the plant, um, what special tools were needed. So everything was being done in parallel. The, the team, the two teams of DeLorean manufacturing and DeLorean purchasing could not have been more close to the Lotus development team, even if we'd all been part of the same company. Right. We did, in fact, operate as if we were one company. Yeah. You couldn't see the join. <laughs> Uh, I have been in the software industry for a long time, and in the last 10-ish years, uh, the term that has arisen is called agile development, which is different than what's called waterfall. Waterfall is long process, long planning, build up. Uh, if you start you know, on day one and you deliver something on day 500, things could have changed in between. It sounds like you guys were doing that agile process of – you you know, just in time, you figured out what you needed right now, yeah. you got it. You yeah. figured out what you needed right yeah. now, you got it. That yeah. is fantastic. That, that's exactly. I, I, I contrast it to early in my career. I started my career at Jaguar um, and then moved into, when Jaguar became part of British Leyland, I moved into the truck and bus division of British Leyland. And at the age of, I think, 25 or 26, I was given a very senior job. Uh, a supplies manager of the bus part of the bus manufacturing part of uh, British Leyland. And uh, to my absolute horror, when I moved in there, I walked into the engineering department at Leyland uh, that had been in place for you know 50 years or so designing trucks and buses. And one of the engineers at a drawing board asked me what I did. And when I told him, he said, oh, I've never met anybody from purchasing before. <laughs> oh. yeah. yeah, that that's a fact. Wow. Um, because the way it was done in those days, and it's not long before DeLorean, this would be a this would be ten years before DeLorean, the engineers engineered the cars, got the drawings to a point where they were absolutely perfect, they would then issue them to the purchasing department. And then the purchasing department would set out to uh, find the sources of supply, negotiate the deal, and place the orders. All, all sequential. Right, right. Now we couldn't do we couldn't do it sequentially. No. We had to do it um, continuously. I never thought about those details, but uh, uh, that's fantastic. So 
you got involved in uh, developing the plant as well. You would mentioned the Telus carriers. Did you ever ride on one of those in the plant? Ride on one? No. Watch <laughs> <laughs> the Watch them moving. I admired them, but I didn't ride on them. <laughs> I, I've I've seen the pictures, like many people. It looks like that there's a big front platform, and I always wondered: is that where would people stand on those to work on the car while it was moving? Yeah, they stood. They stood. They did. They they stood all around the. Uh, that that was one of the joys of the telescarrier system. You know, the operators could get very easy access to all parts of the car once the body had been mounted to the chassis right that, that was the marriage point the marriage point of the two assemblies was uh, at the first telus carrier location very cool i love that technology uh it's very high tech for back then well it was it was you know it was a very very advanced factory uh, it, it was nothing like anything else that most people that were recruited out of the car industry had ever seen before. And, of course, um, the the guys that came from Northern Ireland that came out of shipbuilding or aerospace or, in 50% of the cases, the dole, had never seen anything like it at all. Yeah. They were utterly amazed by the conditions, the cleanliness, the housekeeping. Um, you know, we tried, we tried and did do the job properly. Yeah. How incredibly sad that must have been for so many people, not just the employees, but every, literally everybody involved to have this great opportunity and then things fell apart. Yeah, I mean, yeah, what I haven't mentioned, of course, is in that context of the suppliers. We could not have had a more committed bunch of suppliers. Yeah. Everybody became involved because the suppliers had to do, had to move at the same speed we were moving at. Yeah. And therefore, you know, it wasn't just a case of finding the lowest price. It was finding a supplier that had got the enthusiasm and the commitment to work the same way as us. And we, we had very large corporations that were doing it. I've already mentioned General Motors subsidiaries. We had subsidiaries of Peugeot, the French car manufacturer, uh, who were component manufacturers. We had major subsidiaries of the British corporation, GKN, that were the, probably the biggest component group in Europe at the time, uh, all working flat out, all enthusiastic. One of the ways we, we, we maintained their enthusiasm was as soon as we got cars that were drivable, of any, that it may not be saleable, but they were drivable, mm -hmm. we took them to the suppliers. We took them to the shop floor. We let the guys who were making the components see, what the, see where their components were going. That was tremendously successful. That is, again, going back, that is the Agile methodology is you you see things as they progress. You don't wait until the very end, the finished product, and everyone gets to yeah. see it. That is uh, just so interesting to me that, that you guys developed that kind of workflow back then. Well, we were doing it between 1979 and 1981. Yeah. <laughs> so during your time, did you uh, you said you had been to New York a few times. Did you ever get a chance to visit any of the DeLorean dealerships in America? Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, before I really started doing much detail in, on the purchasing side, John wanted me to become totally familiar with the, with the project. I know he did the same with Bennington and one of a few others. But I went over to the States in the early days of 1979, the early part of January 1979. I went to New York to meet John. I doubled up in as much that I, I met every one of the U.S. suppliers that had been partly involved in building Bill Collins's prototypes, the two prototypes that were built under the auspices of Bill Collins, John's original chief engineer. Mm -hmm. But I also went to California to meet uh, C.R. Brown, who was the vice president of sales and marketing and were very closely alongside John, the guy who really was key in attracting the dealers. Uh, we, we already had uh, over 250 dealers at that time uh, that had all invested in the company, of course. And um, Dick took me to meet uh, a number of dealers in California. So that was all part of the learning process, and uh, it was very quick and easy to identify 
the commitment, you know, I talked about commitment to suppliers. There's also an amazing commitment from the deal, dealer network, uh, not just in the amount of money they invested each in the company, but also in the confidence they had in guys like John and Dick Brown and their respective teams and the enthusiasm they had towards the car. I'm, I'm surprised that a director of purchasing uh, would be involved at the at any level at the dealership. <laughs> well, you know, it, it was all part of John getting me committed and getting getting me up to speed with all that was going on. Wow. Because you know, if I'd got to if I'd got to sell the project to the suppliers, and you've got to remember that the background of what we were operating within. Very soon after the finance had been awarded by the British government to the project and the site had been allocated, most of the British press were very hostile towards us. So we had to counter that. In, in selling the project to the suppliers, me, as far as I was concerned, and my team of purchasing guys were concerned, they need to themselves believe in the project. They needed to know as much as possible about the project. I couldn't send them all to California and all, and them around the dealerships, but yeah. I was able to convey to them the enthusiasm of the dealers, the, the, the quality of the people that were working for Dick Brown and were working for John in New York and California. So that was all part of John's very, very smart approach to making sure that I was fully up to speed with all that was going on, and I could convey that to everyone else. Yeah, a, a good team, everybody knows what's going on, so there's, yeah. uh, it's not just, you're not just one cog who says, I don't care, I did my job. If everybody knows everything going on, they can be yeah. more committed. Wow, fantastic. Yeah. So, last few questions, and these are... Uh, really related to a lot of the, at least American public. I honestly don't know what the popularity is of the Back to the Future movies in Britain. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people have argued that uh, if it wasn't for the Back to the Future movies, that the DeLorean might have kind of disappeared and just been another one of those cars stuck in a garage. Well, firstly, the, the, the Back to the Future movies are probably as popular here in the UK as they are anywhere else in the world. In fact, it's had I've had it quoted to me that the movies, one, at least one of the movies, being, is being shown somewhere in the world every minute of every day. <laughs> I believe that. And certainly, uh, I don't watch it that often these days. Um, I've got two sets of kids, two from uh, my first marriage, which was around the time of the DeLorean Project, that were under 10 then and are now in their 40s. And two of the uh, kids who were uh, one early 20s and the other um, uh, coming up for 20, all four of them are fans of Back to the Future. All four of them th think, of course, that Dad did it all on his own. But I <laughs> he put them right about that. Um, no, I, I think one has to be realistic. The the movies, which are tremendous movies in their own right, I, I must admit, whenever I watch them, I... I get a real kick out of them. I saw them. I saw the original one first time round in the cinema with my with my two first daughters, and uh, I can remember having to drive back home on a very safe, uh, almost empty dual carriageway in my black Audi hundred uh, at eighty eight point eight miles an hour, uh, whilst, whilst they screamed with excitement. It was, it was a lovely. It's a lovely occasion. Um, yeah, I mean, realistically, uh, one wonders just how well the car would be remembered today. Uh, was it not for those movies? You know, would it would it have been a, a Tucker? Would it have been a Brooklyn? Right. right. Um, you know, nobody I know what the, those two cars are because I'm a car nut. Um, but the general public have probably never heard of a Brooklyn and never heard of a uh, of a uh, of a Tucker. Right. Uh, Few more might have heard of the Tucker by virtue of the uh, the movie, the other movie, right? Unfortunately, it wasn't very successful, but um, uh, I watched it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I and I have a copy of that movie. I love it. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, a question just came to mind. At some point, I read a letter that 
uh, John had written to the filmmakers about uh, being thankful that they used his car in the movie. That made mm-hmm. me think that he had no idea that they had purchased several cars and that they had turned it into a time machine. Uh, by then, you were, we'll say, long gone from the company because the movie didn't come out until 85. You were done by 82, 83. 83, 83 I finished, yeah. What was your experience? I mean, the the first time you saw a trailer for the movie or heard about it or someone called you and said, can you believe they're using our car? Well, it's strange, Dave. You know, I think back, it's a long time ago. I saw saw the movie when it was first released in in England. Uh, I went to a cinema in Coventry, the main cinema where it was shown in Coventry. Um, I honestly don't even know whether I knew that the car was featured in the, in the movie uh, I, I probably did but I can't remember I can't remember if, if I did know who told me I was amazed uh, by the car's appearance out of the back of that truck and I was <laughs> amazed what they did with the car and I was amazed the extent to which the, the car starred in the movie you know it was as big as uh, Michael J. Fox and it was as big as uh, Christopher Lloyd yeah um, no, it, it was, and it was very satisfying. You know, one felt really proud. Yeah. I think I walked out the cinema wanting people to ask me if I knew anything about the car. <laughs> no one did, of course. <laughs> right. They don't know who you are and they didn't realize that, uh, absolutely. You had helped build it. Yeah. Very fun. So, just to wrap up, you said you're a car guy. Obviously, you worked for 50 years in the industry. Uh, did you have a favorite car back then? And do you have a favorite car today? Oh, it's the same car. <laughs> it's a car that during my time at Jaguar, I was very, very fortunate to play a very small part in the purchasing of the components that went into it. I sat through the whole of the development program and the procurement program and observed the car go into production. And it's the Jaguar E-Type. It was my fav- favorite car then, and it's still my favorite car. So, have you bought one? Do you have one? No, I've got a I've got a Jaguar S Type. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe one of these days. Well, if only. I, uh, <laughs> as the S Type is depreciating, whilst the E Type appreciates. Oh, there's a big difference. <laughs> that's pretty good. F- Fifty years of being in the industry, and that's still your favorite car. Well, you know. I was very fortunate. At the age of 17, I uh, secured a highly valued apprenticeship at Jaguar Cars Limited. It was going to take five years for me to be trained. My father had to sign a contract with the directors of Jaguar Cars Limited that meant that if at any time during those five years I did not complete the course, he would have to repay... (laughs) Jaguar, everything they'd spent on me. Wow. Now, my father, ironically, worked on the gearbox assembly line at Jaguar. Wow. <laughs> so wow. I don't think he'd have been in a position to repay anything. Yeah, yeah. But I'm sure he but, was he was ready to make sure you committed to it. And He was. And the only bit of advice my father ever gave me when I left school at 16, or nearly 17, was, I don't care what you do, but don't come home like I've done all my working life with dirt under my fingernails, <laughs> right? Yep, that's a common theme with a lot of people uh, yeah. throughout the years. And I, I'll tell you something else. It, it, it was in, I started with the Jaguar in 1959. In 1958, uh, the British, the original, the first ever car magazine uh, in the world was called Autocar. It was published out of Coventry in the turn of the uh, early 20th century. And it wrote something along the lines of British parents are seeking education for their boys these days at one of a very, very few institutions. One is Eton, another is Harrow, the others are Jaguar cars and Rolls-Royce motors. Hmm. Yeah. Now, I've, I had no idea when I started as an apprentice at Jaguar just how privileged I was. And I was as privileged in automotive terms as 
prime ministers of England were privileged uh-huh. going to Eton. Um, it was the most incredible learning experience. And that's something that I should be forever grateful to the founder of Jaguar, you know, my real hero, Sir William Lyons. Fantastic life, it sounds like. And uh, I can tell you're still passionate and love it. And uh, it is a, it's a great thing to be happy about what you've done for 50 plus years. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't have been more fortunate. I spent the last 25 of the 50 running my own business. And I was my company was hired by other, other companies, other organizations, in some cases governments, to go and work around the world uh, to the point where when I did my what turned out to me my very last overseas uh, task, which was in Iran, of all places, the Iranians, went, before they gave me a visa, insisted that I list every country in the world I'd ever visited. Hmm. Now, I, as the Ayatollahs are in, very much in charge then, I thought I'd better get that right, <laughs> uh, just in case they'd been looking behind my back. And the only way I could do that was to get out an atlas of the world and start on the west coast of North America and work my way across to Australia, which was uh, the furthest east I'd worked, uh, and Japan, north of that. Um, And to my absolute amazement, um, Iran was going to be my 50th country. Wow. So I feel, again, very privileged that the auto industry has allowed me to see the world. I've literally worked in on every continent other than South America or, or, or Antarctica if you call that a continent as well there's much automotive going on there um, <laughs> so yeah I, I, I feel very privileged and also just one final point if you like of that 50 years the most rewarding was the, were the four and a half I spent with DeLorean wow. they were incredible unrepeatable it is. Uh, it's all. It's a privilege for me to talk to you. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to a nobody as well. <laughs> to, no, since... not far from it. You're a DeLorean owner now. Finally, finally. Yeah. I, and I am surprised that you never. Well, you drove one. You had a company car, but I'm surprised that uh, over the years you never picked one up. Uh, no. Um, it's very difficult. You know. One of the reasons, I've already mentioned it, one of the reasons I've, I wrote the book and one of the reasons why I've done things like helping organize uh, the first and only reunion of former DeLorean employees that was held in Northern Ireland last year, um, the reason why I attended Eurofest and participated for the first time in a, in a major gathering of owners was all part of this setting the record straight, which is most important. And that's largely because... Whether I've liked it or not, and I haven't really liked it, there's been a stigma associated with DeLorean, particularly in the UK, for the last, well, certainly for the 30 years after the plant got into production. Right. I think, I wasn't ashamed of it, far from being ashamed, I was very proud of it, but I don't think I really set about advertising the fact that I work for John DeLorean. Hmm. And I think owning a car would have advertise that fact and therefore I was really as I said earlier I was trying to get on with my life getting on with my new life yeah and overcome the stigma that was associated with having worked so closely uh, with John DeLorean yeah very well, sad but that, that's a fact Barry again sincerely thank you uh, I'm very excited to continue reading and finish your book at some point I'm very thankful, uh, like many people, that you are involved in the online community. A lot of people turn to you and ask questions, and and you're just so willing to give an answer or a direction, and I think that uh, we're very lucky to have you. So, Well, it's also, remember, because I'm alive. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, there aren't many of my peer group that are still on this mortal coil. It's... uh, uh, it's why it's one of the reasons why we held a reunion last year. Yeah. We're going to have a reunion. We better have one quick before it's our turn. <laughs> well, Dave, uh, I, I've enjoyed our conversation very much indeed. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I, I take up these opportunities because they do represent 
uh, a means through which the record can be set straight. The real story of the success of DeLorean can be put across to people rather than you know, what is considered by many, by far too many, as a failure. It's not a failure. Uh, the DeLorean represents what I call the automotive industry's greatest ever near miss. <laughs> well, thanks again, Barry. Have a great day, and uh, we'll see you online. You too, Dave. Thanks so much. Now, to everyone out there listening, don't forget to like DeLorean Talk on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe on YouTube. Also, I am looking for your comments or questions or topic ideas, so please shoot an email over to comments at DeLoreanTalk.com. And once again, drive safe and don't forget the Windex.